All right, the direct connect to the bullpen is brought to you by Nextel. Bob File now to relieve Pat Hinken. It is the third game for Bob File. He is throwing four and a third innings and has dealt no ERA because of it. He's a four-pitch pitcher. Fastball that'll go 94, 92-ish. He's got a good split. Good curveball. First pitch, Hudson to his right at in. And he throws out Durham. As always, the Mike Saffo podcast is sponsored by the best hot sauce in the game today, Silk City Hot Sauce. You guys know all I do is talk about Silk City Hot Sauce. Not only is Silk City Hot Sauce a small, family-owned business, but Jeff and the gang make sure there is a flavor for everyone. It's made in small batches with the purest and freshest ingredients. Locally grown peppers are the foundation of every single bottle of Silk City Hot Sauce. There are several flavors to choose from, from mild all the way up to wild. And besides the taste, you got to check out the labels. Each sauce features awesome, insane comic artwork, some of the coolest designs I've ever seen. And deep breath, here are some of the flavors. Aztec Attack, Badass Jew, Chipotle, Dragon, Hot Experiment, Killer Hot, Mango Madness and Slurp. Go to SilkCityHotSauce.com, enter the coupon code SAFO, S-A-F-O, and you get a 15% discount, but wait. You know every show I talk about the craziest flavor that Jeff and the gang have, Cherry Sriracha. That's the hot sauce that goes on ice cream. Well, yeah, that's free anytime you place an order and enter the code SAFO during checkout, S-A-F-O. The flavor I'm digging the most right now, I guess the flavor of the week, is the Slurp. Fresh peaches, bananas, honey, apple cider, habaneros, and cherry peppers, they came together and it never looked back. Jeff was telling me that in uh, 2019, he was invited to the Vermont Honey Festival and they had to prepare like a seasonal hot sauce featuring honey. This was Jeff's mad creation. The fans went crazy for it, so it's now a full-time flavor. So everyone go to SilkCityHotSauce.com, enter the promo code SAFO, S-A-F-O at checkout, and you get a free bottle of cherry sriracha. Now everyone... Bob File. Back in the second inning and swiped the base, scored a run when the Rays scored all six of their runs. Right back at File, who picks it up and throws out at first. And you can understand that File might be a little unnerved at that hopper right back at him. But he recovered in time to get the speedy tighter. Well, absolutely. Plays a little hacky sack with it before he is able to reel it in and get the out. Bob, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for calling in. Hey, Mike. Appreciate it. Love the New York accent. <laughs> We're taping this on Championship Sunday, but obviously your Eagles kept my Giants out of the playoffs with all those shenanigans. What are your predictions for today? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, I, you know, quite frankly, I, I love Tom Brady. I love superstars. Um, I know a lot of people like to hate on hate on Tom Brady, but uh, anybody who does what he's done over the last, I don't know. 20 years, how many years he's been playing? He's been playing forever. Um, and now he's doing it with a new team and a new new offense, new everything. Um, it's impressive. So I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Tom Brady. And, and what about in the AFC? You going to go Mahomes and the Chiefs or you can go with uh, the Bills? Yeah, is Mahomes playing? He's playing. They said he has turf toe now, but he's going to play. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, you got to love the Chiefs too. I mean, Ted's a superstar. So, yeah, that, I mean, that would be the ultimate matchup. It, it's funny. As you get older – and I know you grew up a big sports fan, too. You appreciate the guys that you used to hate more. And I know as a Giant fan, it's easy. We beat Brady twice. But I remember growing up, and I would hate 
Manny and I would hate David Ortiz. And then as you get older, you like, I guess you mature and you're like, these guys are just special. And I'm lucky that I can tell my friends and my nephews and my nieces that we watch these dudes play. Yeah, it's so true, man. And, and you know, I kind of I kind of became on that realization when I was younger, when I was playing, because uh, you don't realize how good and how well-rounded just a lot of these individuals are until you're, I mean, you're in the same clubhouse with them. <laughs> you get to know them personally and you're like, wow, I mean, like Derek Jeter. I mean, he was, I was watching him in college playing in the World Series. And next thing you know, I'm like hanging out with him at a bar. It's, uh, and they're just regular people and they're just super talented. So it's, uh, and you realize what they bring to the table. And the older you get, it's just like, you know how hard you work for, for, for in your daily job. And you know what these guys are doing at like a sports level. It's just, it's amazing. What's cooler, being in a video game or being on your first baseball card? Being in a video game, for sure. I'll never forget the first video game. I think I have it in here somewhere. Yeah, I have it back there. Um, it was uh, High Heat 2002, I think, because my first year was 2001. Mm-hmm. And uh, me and Brandon Lyon, he played uh, played a, quite a few years with of the course. Red Sox Cabello team. Um, we went right to, at the time, it was Electronics Boutique. And we got the PlayStation game, went through, came home. It was during spring training. Mm-hmm. Came home after after practice, put it in the PlayStation. And I remember the profile picture. Like, the graphics were good then. PlayStation <laughs> 2, I believe it was. But to see your picture, and I had the high socks in the game. I mean, and I, it, it was just, to this day, it's still unbelievable to me. To be in a video game, because having I'm a tech nerd, so I've mm-hmm. been playing video games my whole life. And to see myself in a video game, it was insane. Now, what about if you would have made like a McFarlane action figure? Would an action figure have top both them or no? Maybe, but no video game because I'm a video game junkie. So, it, but the video game is till to this day. I'm just I can't believe it. It's just unbelievable. Philly guy, like I made jokes up in the beginning. I know your path to the majors always fascinated me because I remember we'll get into your games. I remember your name coming up and looking you up, and your whole path there was pretty interesting. Baseball, your first love always, or was it other sports? Yeah, always, always. Uh, Dad, big baseball guy, big baseball only guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he never played any other sports but baseball. Um, really old school, hardcore, blue collar guy, auto mechanic. Just you're playing baseball, that's it. That's all he played. <laughs> um, I got into basketball later, too, probably too late, unfortunately, because I really loved basketball a lot. I played a little bit in college. Um, but ultimately, baseball at four, year five, four, four or five years old, and then it was all baseball. But that being said, I did play other sports, not like today, where, mm-hmm. I mean, you get into the Twitter mess of the universe right now. I mean, these kids specializing in baseball at eight years old, uh-huh. year round. I mean, they're going to be burned out by the time they're 16. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. But yeah, baseball for sure. So many athletes, Bob. It's funny you said that. Tell, you know, these parents who are so pushing their kids so much. It's like, listen, tell your kids to play every sport because in the end, it's going to eventually help them in their main sport. We know you're focusing on basketball, but have them play everything with every other team aspect and leadership. And they just focus and drill them on playing 175 baseball games or 200 basketball games. It's, they, I don't know. I feel like this, they don't become as well-rounded when they play just one game. And, and, and more than just sports too. I mean, I'm just well-rounded in personality and, and just getting to know other personality types because different sports have different personality types. Mm-hmm. Like football players are, uh, you might play cross sports, but football players, basketball players, like a lot of my friends are basketball players that played in college, um, soccer players. They're just different types of uh, guys and girls. And um, you just get to know different things and helps you in life period um that's what we're seeing with the game today in my opinion i mean the specialization is starting to catch up with it that you know the game is one-dimensional now and uh you don't have the guys like the the albert bells we were talking about the other day where who would just run over a guy trying to tag him i get he has a football mentality i mean mm-hmm. like a linebacker and 
you're not seeing that as much. You're seeing a very one-dimensional play, which unfortunately great athletes. I mean, obviously, I don't know what they're feeding these kids these days. They're like monsters. I mean, Aaron Judge is a is a beast. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you know the stolen base is gone. I mean, it's a lot of the, you sound old and just like you know old school. But it, I played 20 years ago, so it's not like it, less than 20 years ago is my last year. It was like 15 years ago, so it's like. It's, that's not that long. It's not like I had a guy on Twitter the other day tell me, well, John Wooden and I'm John Wooden. I'm like, I'm only, I'm only out playing 15 years. I'm not like 70. Yeah. You know? So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think the well round and, and you see injuries. There's, it's, there's a ton, I mean, it, it's gotten so, I mean, I have a lot of friends that have facilities in the Philadelphia area and they do multiple sports and, um, the injuries they're seeing early ages. I mean, you could contribute. You don't know. People don't know because the sample set, it's going to take another 20 years before mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, okay. You know, cause, and it's hard for kids to play like basketball and baseball now because of the coaching. It's a lot of it, you know, comes from parenting and coaching too. Yeah. It's not the kid's fault. I mean, you have a 10 year old whose dad, like if it was like my dad, I mean, he'd be like, okay, you got to play baseball year round. You're going to be, be a great baseball player. And, uh, but needless to say, I probably wouldn't be playing at all because it costs so much money these days. That's a whole nother thing. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of problems, but at the same time, there, there are some great athletes coming out of the, the way things are done today. So, you know, you got to find that, that, that middle ground, I think somehow. You mentioned your dad a couple of times, one, who was his guy growing up and two, who was your guy growing up? Man, his guy growing up, I think he was just a huge Philly fan all around. He loved the Eagles, um, loved the Phillies, especially like the 93 World Series, which mm-hmm. it's interesting having played in Toronto. And and a little backstory. I mean, I, I played Cito Gaston was my bench coach. He was the manager of the Blue Jays that year. So I used to have talks with him, just the, <laughs> the, the inside workings of that series and what was going on behind the scenes. Um, but that was during my high school years. But he was he was just a straight not one particular guy or guys, but it was mostly Philly diehard. Phil, I mean, you know, Philly fans. Mm-hmm. I mean, diehard. Uh, so that was until I played. And then uh, when he got booed at, <laughs> at Veterans Stadium when I played there, he kind of saw the other side of Philly fans. Uh, but, but yeah, so that, that was that. But, I mean, my, my guy growing up always was, was Wade Boggs, oh, which really? was interesting. That's interesting, yeah. Well, I was a shortstop growing up. Shortstop, pitched, you know, because I had a good arm. But uh, I was mostly a shortstop. Never pitched an inning in high school, ever. Um, I was a shortstop, and, and then I converted to third base in college. And uh, Wade Boggs, I just liked the way he hit. I mean, I was a hitter first my whole life. Uh, I hit way more, many more years than I did pitch. And uh, Wade Boggs was always a contact hitter, like the Tony Gwynn's types. And he always got on base some way and always uh, two strikes, put the ball in play. And that was, uh, that was always uh, – he was my guy. And, um, you know, he turned out to be obviously a great player. Obviously, professional pitcher. You play in the majors. You just mentioned it. How didn't you pitch in high school? Because usually, I played baseball my whole life too. I don't know if you know this. I did not make the majors, but uh, you know, in high school, you played the shortstop, always pitched the third baseman, always pitched. Why didn't you pitch in high school? Because you were obviously good enough. You were the athlete. Yeah, it was. Inter- it's interesting, and we still have these. You should stay friends with your high school. Some of the high school teammates till today. We still have these conversations. Some of these guys that would come visit me in Toronto, and we still talk about today. I'll never forget the conversation with my high school coach at the time. He never had two-way players, like guys that played the field and pitched. And he asked – I I went up to him. My dad was like, you got to tell him you pitch. Because I was pitching in outside little league, mm-hmm. like little like amateur leagues, and I was pretty decent. I had a good arm. And I asked the coach, and he's like, listen, if you want to hit, you can play shortstop. If you want to pitch, then fine. You just won't play pitch. You won't play shortstop. You'll just pitch all the time. And I'm like, okay, I guess I want to hit. I want to hit. So I never pitched in anything in high school ever. And I didn't pitch until my junior year of college. Well, I want to go to that because you didn't you go to like some textiles and science college. 
Yeah. At the time when I went, it was Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, a really strong engineering school. Mm-hmm. And uh, me being a tech nerd, I went there for computer science, so computer engineering. And that, that was that was my goal, academics. But now it's Jefferson University. It was changed, name changed a couple of times. So it's Jefferson University today. So no offers come out of high school for baseball? Small. Um, at last minute, I had Temple come out of nowhere. Oh, okay. It was funny because the textile, the Jefferson University head coach was Don Flynn, who coached with Skip Wilson at Temple for 25 years. And he's like, why don't you talk to Skip a little bit? I'm like, this guy recruited me already. And it's Division Two, but he's like, Division One, you know. And he offered some little bit of money late. And my dad was like, you got to go to Temple. It's Division One. And my mom was like, no, they have a better computer science program at a textile. Wow. And, uh, and ultimately, thank God I made that choice. Because um, at Temple, I would have probably set the bench my first year. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, you know, I probably wouldn't have because I was a pretty good athlete, but at the same time, non-scholarship player, you know, it's like, it's like MLB, it's low, low draft picks, you mm-hmm. know, high draft picks, you have to get priority. So I went to Textile and, and thank God I did. I played in every single game there all four years. Temple Owls, what is the Textile mascot? The Rams. Oh, that's pretty badass for a, t- uh, a textile yeah, school. It was, it? it was, it was good. I mean, at the time uh, in, in 94, when I went there, we were in the New York Collegiate Athletic Conference, NYCAC, which was now the Northeast 10, which is a pretty strong Division II conference. Yeah, without doubt. Um, we had Adelphi, St. Rose, probably the schools up by Queens. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of guys drafted out of that league. And um, ultimately, it was – it was we were, locally, we played all the D1 schools. So we played Temple, LaSalle, Drexel, um, Villanova, and we beat them all, St. Joe's, and we would beat them. Um, so we were competitive. Uh, we, we had like 27 wins my first year there, which, you know, but back then the, the South schools, they started way earlier than in, mm-hmm. in the schools that that's changed. But we would go down to Florida and play like Florida Southern. They would be 19 and two. And we're, <laughs> we're on the field for the first time. We would get destroyed. I mean, you're destroyed of, by these teams. You're out of high school for like three weeks. You're playing third base down there. And these guys basically had a half a season already. <laughs> I know, and they're like men, and I'm like, what is going on here? They were huge, like Division Two down in the Sunshine State, Sun Sunshine State Conference is stacked. I mean, these guys could play any of the D1 schools, mid D1 schools up here, and it's it's solid baseball. But uh, yeah, so it was it was an experience. But that being said, and then I coached for a little bit at the Division One level at LaSalle University locally after I was done playing and um, seeing the type of athletes at division one, even at a small school like LaSalle, it's like, it's amazing. I got drafted. I still can't believe it to the day. Well, before we get there, cause I looked at your stats. I never look at old interviews cause I don't want to like regurgitate the same exact questions. You betted 540 in, in college. 542. And I don't care if people are like, Oh, it's division two. That's beer league softball numbers. You put up. Why then did you move? Cause I was saying in high school, Bob, you got a pitch. You have a great arm. Why would you move from hitting to pitching in college if you're batting five, almost 550? I mean, it's really a loaded question. See, it, it's funny, and it's it's an ongoing joke because that season, my senior year at textile was it was something out of like everything went right. Everything snow, mm-hmm. I mean, through bad weather, everything that could have went right went right in the 42, 43 games I think we played that year, literally. And um, like I said, I was always a hitter first, but the year before I hit four something. And I knew the next year I was like, I could have a pretty solid season. I changed a couple things with my batting stance and I hit a lot of home runs, I hit 19 home runs in 42 games. Um, but the average, I was actually hitting 570 something going into the last three games of the season, four games what? of the season. And I went one for my last 16 <laughs> and I dropped. But that being said, it was like, the, I look at the stats and I'm like, 542. You're right. It's, it's, it, it was a lot of luck too. Balls fell in. I mean, Everything that could have went right went right, literally. And 
But it's funny because the day that I was, I would pitch my senior year. I started a couple games, like probably like seven games on a weekend. And I was starting the second game of a doubleheader, seven inning games, and to save my arm to play third base. So I played third the first game, whatever. And uh, so this a bunch of scouts were out there seeing me play third. And I would, and it's funny because I would pitch the second game, but the scouts were there the first game to see me hit, and uh, they, they they knew I was pitching the second game, so they stay around. And a guy that got drafted, Sean Mabula, a friend of mine, he got drafted the next year. Um, they were there to see him too, without fan of pitcher. But so the first game I, I play and, and I do well, and the second game I pitch, and uh, the Blue Jays and Cardinals stayed around, and they talked to me afterwards, and the Blue Jays. Ben McClure said to me, he was a local scout. He was, he said, you know, would you, we'd be interested in pitching if we could, you were throwing 94 in the, in the last inning. I had no idea. I mean, I was like, I literally really, I knew I was doing from a, from a, from a, just an intelligence standpoint in terms mm-hmm. of like analyzing hitters and knowing hitters. And that's how I pitched, but I didn't, I wasn't really like a pitcher. I was like, and at the time I'm like, sure, you know, you're a college senior. I'm like, yeah, I'll do whatever. But I didn't <laughs> take stock into it because um, later on, when I when I got drafted and, and signed, I know I'm getting ahead of you here, but uh, Ben McClure, that scout, was at my house, and he's like, "Listen, he's like, you're down here as a third baseman. I get drafted as a third baseman. He's like, but you're gonna go to Medicine Hat, Alberta, and you might pitch. Don't be disappointed if you pitch." And I was like, "My dad's like, yeah, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever it takes." So I'm like, "All right, all right." Little did I know that I I didn't know how pro ball worked, and little did I know that I would not pick up back at bat again until ten years later. Now, so you knew you had an inkling in college that you were getting looked at, even at a Division two school. You knew the schools yeah. were looking at you. Oh, okay, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, there was there was probably, I mean, there would be the scouts were coming in droves, like they were coming in fifteen, twenty, because I was at the time I was hitting over six hundred. So <laughs> scouts can't ignore that. No, you I mean, can't. You can't. You can't. You just can't. Even if it's a Division three level, I mean, mm-hmm. I know guys that get drafted at Division three. Like they're just curious. And they're low, and there's a lot of Division One schools locally, so they're going to come. And there's buzz around, like this player has this these amount of stats. Because back then the internet, I mean, it was there, and not back then. It was only twenty some years ago, but it wasn't like you can't get video and information like you can now. So they would have to go and see, like, okay, they're hearing this, they're reading this in the papers, and that's how like, buzz started going. And and the clip I was hitting the home runs and things in it was, it was happening like every other game. So like I said, everything was going right. So and then I was pitching. And Buzz got around with that, that I'm hitting all the go throwing over 90 miles an hour. And uh, that's kind of when it kind of – scouts were just curious, I guess. Well, I'm actually glad you brought up the internet with watching kids because you can watch an eighth grader now pitch if he's good enough. There's no mock drafts then. And I'm a, I am love the – and every draft I'll watch, Bob, I don't care what it is. I'm obsessed with drafts, and I love draft stories. So where were you when you got drafted? Because, like, you have guys on you. Like, I didn't know if I was going to go in the first round or the 30th. It's – you didn't have mock drafts over there where after the first round. So did you have any inkling, hey, I'm going to get drafted, or even what round you might be in? Well, no. Um, I was interviewing for jobs. I accepted a job at a consulting firm doing uh, de- development engineering work, and uh, I accepted. I was supposed to start in July. Um, pretty good money back then, too. I was thinking I was starting at like 75 k a year. Oh, and This wow. is back in 1998, yeah, being a computer science tech person. Well in demand, even then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I accepted it. And I, so I had that in the back of my mind. I was a good. I, I thought there was a chance I'd get drafted, but I was more realistic. My dad was like, definitely happened. No doubt about it. But, you know, I, I kind of, I knew, not what I know now. Like, if I knew what I knew now, I'd be like, there's no way I'm getting drafted. But knowing back then, I was like, there's a shot. Because um, I talked to enough. They've called a couple times to ask if I would sign. Because I knew about, you know, my 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 uh, intellectual like educational side mm-hmm. so they were like are you going to take a job instead because you know you get signed you're not going to make any money and 
the draft was 25 rounds day one, 25 rounds day two back then. Two to two days of the draft, and there was cell phones were non-existent. So I sat at my parents' house. We just sat on the couch, oh. and my dad and my mom just sitting there waiting. And the first day, we're sitting there waiting. I'm like, I'll probably wait till tomorrow. I mean, at best. Mm-hmm. And phone rang, and you know, we had caller ID then. It came up like caller ID, like Ben McClure. I'm like, oh my god, like because because it was he was calling from his house to tell me that they signed me because uh-huh. you're not getting called from the GM or anything. At yeah, the yeah, 19th yeah. Round, you're just a scrub. <laughs> so they they call and it's like. Hey, you know, we took you in the 19th round. Ben's like, congratulations. Um, I'll be over your house to sign the paperwork and the contract. And I'm like, all right. So that's that's kind of when I got the call. And it was uh, pretty static. But um, but it's interesting. Uh, I kind of held out for like two weeks because um, I, I was using an agent at the time to kind of advise me. The, mm-hmm. My college coach knew from Temple, local guy. And he's like, what they offer you? I'm like, nothing. They're like, just a plane ticket. I'm like, he's like, nah. He's like, you have a job waiting for you. Hold out. I'm like, hold out. I'm like telling my dad, I'm like, hold out. My dad's like, he's not holding out. I'm like, hold out. I'm a 19th round senior. I'm not, I had no other option for baseball. He's like, I'm telling you, this is how it works. So, so then they, the, the scout called. He's like, all right, I'll see what I can do. But you're supposed to go to Florida next week. And I missed like the early camp. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, hold, what am I doing? And I was freaking out because it was silent for like four days. Mm-hmm. It was I mean, I don't know. Back then, I, I was okay, and like five the fifth day, they're like, "All right, we'll give you four grand." I was like, four grand is more money than I ever had in my life." Yeah, of course. I had like three hundred dollars in my bank account. I'm like, four grand. I'm like, I'm buying a laptop with that. I'm like, such a, <laughs> that's the first thing I think. So yeah, so we uh, that's how it happened basically. And, and you get down there, and truthfully, Bob, you started dominating right away. All star games, crazy low ERA. Did you knew like it, listen? You knew you belonged. So I don't want to, oh, Division Two. you knew you belonged. When you get down there and you start dominating and realizing, hey, 19th round pick, you don't care who the first round pick is, last year's high pick, did you know then, okay, I'm going to make it? No, 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 no. Especially when you get there. My first year, I always say, if I didn't have the year I had, I mean, a lot of luck too. You have to have some luck. I mean, I, I wind up falling into the closer's role because we had a guy, Mike Stafford, out of Ohio State who was a closer, and he blew his first two saves. I didn't pitch for like the first eight days in, in, in rookie ball. I was I was like, what's going on? And I got in the game in Great Falls, Montana, came in the seventh inning. We were up by two runs. I pitched the seventh and eighth, struck outside both innings, and he left me in for the ninth for the save, which was – we three-inning save? Oh, my God. Struck out two more guys, struck out eight guys, eight out of nine guys, and then I became the closer. I closed the rest of the season that year. And I always say if I didn't have the season I had in terms of just domination – like in terms of stats, mm-hmm. I don't know how I would have handled the adversity my first year because I didn't, it wasn't nuts about pitching. Like I got out there and it was like, okay, you're going to go run with the pitchers. I'm like, run with the pitchers. And I go out there and start running miles. I'm like, I haven't ran miles. Like I was a position <laughs> We don't run miles. I was exhausted. I was like and sitting in the bullpen all game. I'm like, this sucks. And I didn't see the big picture my first like couple months because, you know, you're in a mess now. You're playing with a bunch of 17-year-olds. We had a – we had a – pretty old team for the rookie ball a lot of mm-hmm. college guys which was good like jay gibbons orlando hudson we played i played with oh, like, wow okay yeah yeah we were stacked we had the best record in the pioneer league history i mean we were we were stacked in terms of like because we were playing against a lot of younger dominican venezuelan guys mm-hmm. that were just like you know just their first year and they're 16 17 just very raw like i would throw sliders and I'd swing at every one of them they wouldn't even do that in college you know what i mean so it was um it was it was the learning experience, obviously, but I did really really well that year, and then that's when the work really started after that season. Because then I started using I have my all my books still. I would mm-hmm. buy books then, start researching, just learning how to pitch. You mentioned the closer lost the job after two games. Mm-hmm. 
I always find the mental aspect. I had Bob Tewksbury on. He wrote a book on you know mm-hmm. the, uh, the mental side yeah. of baseball. And for you, being a young kid, not a huge name, mentally, is it exhausting? Like, holy crap, if I have a bad outing, I, I might be bounced to the sixth inning guy. How do you, as a college graduate, I know you're intelligent, you're a big yeah. reader about that stuff. How do you uh, process that so young? Like, if I have a bad minor league outing, I might not pitch tomorrow. Yeah, the, the my, it, it actually that that mentality come. I will come back to it like in a second. Like that actually was harder in the big leagues than it was in the low minor leagues. Low minor oh, leagues wow. to me was like a an extension of college. Um, I, I have some of my best friends ever from the minor leagues. Like, I mean, you spend every day, every minute with them, all day bus rides for, you know, out in Utah to Medicine Hat. It's like a twenty hour bus ride. I mean, these bus rides are you you get some of the best friends I've made in my life from minor league baseball. But that being said. The only thing in minor league baseball you see below double A, a little bit in double A, but mostly below double A is a lot of um, just guys, you know, hoping. They won't say it, but you see it. Like guys hoping other guys do bad so they mm-hmm. look better, you know. It's a lot of like that ticky-tack stuff. That ends yeah. after double A. I mean, because then the, you become, you truly understand the game because if everybody does well, you do well. Like I was lucky enough to be on a medicine hat team that was great, great players. So I got a lot of save opportunities. I was on a Dunedin team in A-ball. That was great. Like Vernon Wells. I mean, we had seven big leaders on that team. <sighs> And which is for able, that's crazy. And, um, and we, we were awesome. So I had a lot of save opportunities, a lot of great defense, Mike Young and Cesar's Torres up the middle. I mean, oh. it would make plays. I think how many runs they saved for me. I mean, and which made me look better on paper. And as a 19th rounder, I had to look dominant on paper. Mm-hmm. To people even know Bob Pyle's name. Because otherwise it's like, unless you're dominant on paper, I had like a three year, I had to be like, I was just another reliever. So yeah, it's um, that mentality. Really, it's it's the it gets harder once you once the stakes are a lot higher. That's a good point. You know, I never thought of. That. I was always thinking in the minor leagues. I'm like, dude, I want everyone to do bad. Like, I because I'm like, I want to be the guy. But it makes a lot more sense if you have great plays around you. You're gonna look better no matter who you are. Well, it's like that in anything too. I try to say that, like my job today, like leading people. It's like I hire people that are way smarter than me because I want everybody to do well because then I do well. You know, and people don't look at it that way. It's it's such a shame, and it sounds like it's so easy. Like you mm-hmm. can do it. So it's so easy, and especially in the minor leagues, um, there's a lot of guys, especially relief pitchers, didn't really get that. Like if a relief pitcher does bad, it's like, yeah, you might get an opportunity, but I know if you do well and keep doing well, you're going to be in a, in a good situation. Syracuse, Knoxville, Medicine Hat. Besides the bus rides, what do you remember about those small little minor league towns? Man, it's tough. That's tough. It's funny. Um, Got a guy from Medicine Hat asking me. He does like a podcast for medicine, former Medicine Hat baseball players. I'm like, man, there's a podcast for everything. Oh, that's and, cool. That's uh, cool. I always say Medicine Hat was pretty awesome. I was lucky enough to room with a guy that played at Queens College that I played against in college, did Justin Davies. And, and we got drafted by the same team. We lived together. So it was a little comfort there. But Medicine Hat, Alberta, talk about culture shock. It was, I mean, a town of like not that many people, middle of nowhere. It's about three hours north of Montana and two hours south of Calgary, Alberta. I mean, but I always say I wish I played there a couple of years in because I would have enjoyed it a lot more. My first year is just like shell shock. And they're like, what's going on? I'm in a small town. This, there's bugs everywhere. Every time you try to pitch, they're known for their bugs where you come in late in the game and these bugs would cover and they wouldn't stop the game. I would be close and I couldn't see the plate. It was so ridiculous. And, but just like stories like that, um, pretty crazy, but yeah, all the towns I played in were great. I mean, I loved Dunedin. I love Florida. I mean, but that's a little more mainstream. Knoxville was a little more mm-hmm. low-key. We lived in Sevierville, which was an hour and 20 minutes from the stadium every day because that's all we could afford because you don't Oof. pay any money. Um, so we had to drive an hour and 20 minutes one way to get to the field. We'd get home every night at 1 in the morning. We had to go to the field at like 11 a.m. every oh. day. 
Um, but it was a brand new stadium, so it was pretty cool. A lot of the great people down in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, it was good. All the towns I played in were great. Syracuse was close to home. It was only four hours in Philly, so mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends and family be able to see me there. And uh, Toronto was only eight hours from Philly, so um, good, good, good towns, man. I mean, a lot of crazy stories, uh, you know, but not sharing on a podcast. No, that's it. A lot of fun. It's like, like I said, it's like an extension of college. It really, especially in the low minor leagues, because your expectations of making the big leagues as a nineteenth rounder, and mm-hmm. maybe as like a Vernon Wells or like a first rounder, they know maybe. But even like Mike Young, I played many years with him. He wound up becoming a great major league baseball mm-hmm. player, and he was just consistent. Not a superstar, but he, he stood out. He was an all-star in the minor leagues, but he didn't, you didn't look at him and say, this guy's going to be a superstar. In the this guy was pretty much an all-star every year in the big leagues, but just consistent and worked hard and just a great dude. And, uh, you know, but I don't, I don't think he had, I mean, maybe people thought they'd make it to the big leagues, but like myself, it was like so out. The, the chances are, I mean, you see the stats nowadays. I mean, of course, yeah. if I knew those stats then, I mean, the chances of making it are like one in a million. You have a better chance of hitting the lottery. Under one ERA, Bob, take me when you get that phone call. Does the is it like the movies? Hey kid, come in here. You're going up to the big show. Get, tell me about that call and who's your first call? Nothing like the movies, first of all. <laughs> so I'm 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 actually it's it's kind of complicated the way it happened. Um but looking back on it, it's it's they had a plan to bring me up quickly. So <laughs> I didn't make the team right out of spring training. I made it like three days in. But but I was supposed to. But they had to move John Frascatore, who was on the roster. They had to make some moves, like on the business side. I didn't understand that. I'm like, okay. And they wanted to send me back to Double A because it was warm in Tennessee. Just because I had to pitch a couple outings, not in Syracuse where the snow was. I'm like, what? I I kind of understood it, but I kind of like didn't believe anybody. Mm-hmm. So I went down there, and I was actually on the road in West Tennessee, and that was in I don't know what. I guess it's called West Tennessee. It's it's like hours from Knoxville, and. You know, I'm playing with all these guys I don't know. They're, they uh, should be in AAA with guys I know. But a couple guys I know, we go to the gym. Jake Gibbons is in AA at the time. I'm at the gym with Jake Gibbons. And we're at the gym, like a local gold where you pay like money on the road. And we're, it's like 8.30 in the morning. And we're working out and we're coming home. But we had to walk home because the taxi wouldn't come. And the walk back to the hotel was like five miles. So we're walking. We're walking across a freeway. Like literally a freeway. Like, you know, freeways up northeast, like, and, and the cars were dying, and my phone rings. I have a cell phone at the time, flip phone, mm-hmm. and the phone rings as I'm in the, the median of the middle of the highway. <laughs> I pick up the phone. It's Rocket Wheeler, who was my manager at AA at the time. He goes, hey, Bob, I got great news. You're going, you're going to the show. I'm like, wow. all right. And I'm like, trying not to get hit by a car. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so I have the phone. I'm like, Jay, I'm like, we got to get back to the hotel. Quick as possible. I had to pack my stuff and I had to drive back to Knoxville and I had to take a flight to Toronto. And um, that's what I did. I, it was all a blur, like literally going and then went back to the hotel, got my stuff together, went back to Knoxville, I had to pack up all my stuff and then I had to fly to Toronto, but leave my car in Knoxville. Like it's, it's, it's such a it's such a disaster, the logistics of it. But you're so happy. You're like, OK, and you fly first class. I'm like, I never flown first class before. <laughs> and I'll never forget. This is funny because my first year, my first game in the big leagues, you can look back. I get out there. And I'm like still in the days, but I go out and do my normal routine. I'm in the sky dome. I'm doing my run, running in, around the, doing my poles and stuff. And I come in the dugout and I, always, I hear this noise. It's a dome. It's covered. And I'm like, what is that noise? A piece of the roof falls onto the field. It would have killed anybody. Literally, they canceled the game that night. No, you can no, look back. It was no, the only no. game canceled. The roof fell in. I was so tired. I remember being like, if I do get in the game tonight, I'm not even going to be able to open my – like I was so – exhausted from the day and like the adrenaline 
and the roof falls in. I'm like, talk about luck. I'm like, really? The roof, the game got canceled tonight. I called my dad. I'm like, the game got canceled because the roof fell in. He's like, get out of here. The roof fell in. And I always, I'm like, what is going on? The roof fell in. And the game, yeah. So that was my first day in the big leagues, the roof of the stadium. And I thought, they thought they were going to cancel games for like the week. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm in the big oh. leagues. They're gonna... And they wind up fixing it. And we played the next night. But, uh, but yeah, that's the story. Rewind a little bit because as a fan, and like I said, I love that you're a fan because I have a lot of a lot of players on who weren't the biggest fans growing up. You're walking into a locker room with Tony Batista, Raul Mondesi, Dan Plesac, Roy Holiday. When you walk in, and it sounds silly, how do you introduce yourself? Because I know you played with Homer Bush. Homer was on the show before. He's come on before. And I'm like, how do you just go up to Jeter? And like, what do you say? Hey, I'm Bob. Like, how does that introduction happen? Now, you're a pitcher, so you're probably not going to go up to Mondesi. You're probably going to go up to Doc Holiday. What do you say? Well, yeah, that, well, what helps with that is the fact that you played spring training and a lot of the interactions happen in spring training that are real, that you, you obviously meet a lot of these guys and the better you do in spring, like I had a pretty good spring training. I stayed the whole time um, and I played a little bit the year before in spring training. So I got to know some of them a little bit, like Paul Quantrill, I got to know pretty well prior to that. So he welcomed me in, like he, he came right over to me because it is awkward. You're in there and you're like, and there's all these clubhouse guys trying to help you out. You're not used to this in the minor leagues. It's like, it's night and day from the minor leagues. It really is. I mean, guys are like, hey, can I get you this? Can I get you this? I'm like, what? I'm like, I need a pair of spikes. Because in Syracuse, we were, or Syracuse and Knoxville, we were black spikes for some reason. And in the big leagues, they had blue uniforms at the time. And I'm like, I don't have any blue spikes to play. And Doug is like, here, use these. And he throws me a pair. I wear Doug spikes for the first three years. Oh for the first God. three months, of my season, I wear Doug. It says Doug Goddard's number. I'm on all my spots. That's what I wore for the first three months because they were broken in. They were nice Adidas. I liked them. I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks. But yeah, ultimately, um, that team at the time was a, it was a veteran team too. They were good. The year before, they competed to win the title. And that year was, I mean, a lot of older guys. Like you said, Plezak, Quantro, Mondesi. Batista was my locker mate. I mean, Homer, um, Delgado. I mean, we were good. I was the young, I was 24. I was the, by far the youngest guy on the team. Which was kind of good, but at the same time, being a rookie with those kind of guys, that old school mentality, it's rough. Talk about hazing. It's rough. Now, forget about your first game. You've talked about that, you know, every interview you've done. Yeah, your, sec- your second game is where it's at because you're play- facing my Yankees, and it wasn't like, all right, Bob, you're going in there for a little bit. Your second game, you pitched four innings. No, this. I don't even know where to start with that game because I still, to this day, can't believe it. First, there's a couple things here. First, mm-hmm. let's get that game. I I was first of all, I was in the bullpen. I pitched my first game. He put me in a situation that was very non-pressure, which thank God because your first game, you never forget it because you can't feel your legs. It's the weirdest thing ever. Um, but then that game, I hadn't pitched for like seven days, and we were it was going into the, what the the 14th inning at the time mm-hmm. or 13th whatever it was and I'm in the bullpen I'm the last reliever not used and they're warming up Steve Paris who's a starter because they're afraid to put me in because I'm a rookie and I was so pissed I'm like you gotta be kidding me I was so pissed and I told the bullpen coach um, like this is bullshit and the, the the pitching coach the bullpen coach said something to the pitching coach I said listen why don't we just put a file on what's the, what we got to lose like well he was you know he's a two inning max guy I'm like all like, well, the game could be over in an inning yeah. So I want to warm me up and I got in. And when I got in that game, it was different than my first outing. I was I was annoyed. Like I was annoyed that I wasn't pitching in seven days and that, you know, wait till the last possible reliever, never warming up a starter. So mentality wise, just took over like it was another baseball game. But getting into that game, they had a powerful left handed hitting lineup. I was a sinker baller. I was good against righties, really good. Lefties, I mean, because it's closing in the minor leagues, a lot of righties that. You know, I would just throw singers away to lefties and get them out. But 
you're talking about, I come in there, you got Knobloch, Jeter, Posada, Justice, Tito Martinez, um, Paul O'Neill. Well, no, it wasn't a Paul O'Neill. Um, that, that whole squad was just stacked. <laughs> and they, I was watching them in my dorm room two years prior winning World Series. And I remember I came in there and I was like, okay, the first inning I get, I get three, I think I had three, two or three righties and I get through it pretty quickly. I come and dug out, talk to Darren Fletcher. And I'm like, listen, we have, Next inning, we have Justice, Posada, and Tino Martinez coming up, I think, or in that whatever order, three, or no, it was O'Neal, Tino, and Justice. And I'm like, they're three powerful lefties. I said, listen, I throw a, I throw a slurve, like a slurve ball. I said, but, but call it, give me location on it. I said, Tell, we'll backdoor it on these guys. Literally, I made up a pitch that game, that inning. I never threw it into my legs, ever. I said, we can backdoor my slider because I don't have anything else to throw at them because they're going to see my <laughs> sinker, they're going to lay off it, or they're going to smash my inside fastball. And if you look at the, the videos out there, if you look at it, I go back out and we literally lived on that backdoor sinker or that backdoor slurve to O'Neill, struck out O'Neill, struck out Tino. Justice almost crushed it, but he grounded a double play. And then the second inning I got done, I came in the dugout. And I'm like, okay, a two innings. I can't be going out for a third inning, am I? And then the pitcher goes like, wow, you're going out for a third. Okay. <laughs> so I go for the third inning and that's, I was like, okay. And then, I'm out in the third inning. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm throwing. Oh, okay, okay. And I get through it. I go in the dugout. And I'm like, I got to be done. I'm like, hopefully we win at this inning. And he's like, Fah, you're going to go out for the fourth inning. I'm oh. like, if it stays tied. I'm like, oh, not fourth inning. I haven't thrown four innings since college. Like, I haven't. And But my pitch count's low. But it's the stopping and going. And I'm thinking, okay, adrenaline, I'll be fine. So I get out there. My calf starts cramping. I'm like, oh, all right. And I got Knobloch, 0-2. First batter I face is Knobloch, 0-2. And I'm like, or no, I get two quick outs, and then it's not black, and I got him 0-2. And I'm like, okay, I can get through this. Four straight pitches, walk them. Like, oh. I didn't walk any guys then at all. And I was like, all right, I'm getting tired, I think. <laughs> and they with nobody in the bullpen. So Knobloch's on first, and I'm like trying to keep him close. I'm like, that's Chuck Knobloch at first. I mean, this guy's like fast as shit. He's a base dealer. Like, this isn't like no – I'm like, okay, I got to keep him close. Jeter's up. I'm like, got to be kidding me. <laughs> I still, to this day, I'm like, I can't believe the situation. And uh, I throw over the first couple times, and it's like – you throw it at first in the big leagues, they, they can see you're moving a mile away. I used to pick guys off. I didn't come close to picking buddy, buddy off in the big leagues. He's just like walking back to first. There's no tag. I'm like, oh, my God. He has a lead like halfway to second base. He's still getting back. And then – so then I ultimately uh, – he steals second. Jeter hits a little bouncer through the hole, and he gets the third, and it's first and third. Now with two outs, I'm like, oh, and guess who comes up? Paul O'Neill. Struck him out the first time, and he's throwing coolers and shit. He's all <laughs> – I'm thinking to myself on the mound, like Paul O'Neill does not. He remembers. He's not going to. He's not going to fall for this again. First yeah, pitch, that is not going to work. Yeah. So I try to get him, like, okay, sinker away, and he just like pokes it right through the infield, face it, runner scores. I'm like, man, I'm like, damn it. Then I, then I got the last guy out, and um, it still wasn't over yet because we're down by one. We have Fulmer, Delgado, and Jose Cruz Jr. up. I'll never forget it. Like it's yesterday, three, four, five, and. Uh, but right before those, that's right, we did have three or five. Randy Choate was in there. I don't remember Randy Choate. Yeah, of audience. course. Yeah. He walks the bases loaded, nobody out. I'm like, oh, my God, this is huge. I'm getting my first W. And then walks the bases loaded on like, on, like, 12 straight pitches. Like, whatever. And then we have Fulmer, Delgado, and Cruz. I'm like, we have a three, four, five out, bases loaded, nobody out. I'm like, somebody can have a sack fly, at least tie it. What does he do? Randy Choate turns around, just throwing pitches, like, into the backstop. Now he strikes out the side. Strikes out all three of them, they win the game, and I get the loss. I'm like, you got. It's like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, talk about like we could have just had one sack fly, little, little you know, double play. We got to run, uh, but 
Yeah, so that, that game, I remember it like it was yesterday. Literally. And I, I know, like, you you know, the, the games everyone probably talks about, your first game, the Yankee game, and I want to talk about your homecoming. How many tickets did you have to get for family and friends when you go down to Philly? That was awesome. I mean, I was after the first game, first set after the All-Star break. So I got to go home for a week and get to drive down with my dad to Veterans Dad, can you take me down to Veterans Stadium? For, oh, my for, God. Go work. I would make a joke. I'm like, I got to work. Can you drive me on the Veterans Stadium? So my dad would, like, drive me into the visitors' clubhouse. And um, every player back then would get – you know, four family levels tickets and two visiting tickets. So you get six pl- tickets per guy. And Philly, Philly was pretty good that year, but they still weren't selling out. So um, every guy on the team gave me all six tickets. So I literally left hundreds of tickets. I, I left. Oh, wow. Wow. And I would look up. I remember I got in two of the three games and uh, I would look up behind home plate. And it was literally family, friends, college. It was all my, my people, like everywhere. And it was like a cheering section. It was awesome. It was great. It was. Uh, and then I got in the first night. And then the second night was uh, one to remember, that's for sure. Well, well, tell me about the second night because I never knew of this. You know, I actually – after looking you up and we were texting back and forth, I'm like, oh, I, I probably remember that game. I watch every single Yankee game. And I'm like, let me do a quick search on him. Tell me about your Philly homecoming in the final yeah. game because this, this is awesome. Yeah, so I, I so I, I get into – it's funny because Buck Martinez did a lot for me. He gave me my first opportunity. It was his first year managing. He really relied on me in a lot of key situations. In the second half, they were going to rely on me more. Um, cause we had Quantrill setting up with, with Polizak. So I was getting these tighter games and, um, in Philly, I hadn't given up a home run the whole first half of the season. And, and I'm in Philly. I'm in my hometown Veterans Day and dream pitching dream, dream situation. And the first night I get in and I get out of the inning, I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then, uh, I get in the game and, um, never forget it. I get a uh, Scott rolling up there and I remember I had him had two strikes on him. Then I went, I think I went full count on him. But he kept failing off every single – he had that short swing like Jeter, that short, tight mm-hmm. swing. And I had struggled with those guys right-handed because um, they would always get the barrel, some part of the barrel of the ball. I went and they wouldn't extend it. I couldn't break their bats basically. That's why Jeter owned me. And um, so Rowan was doing the same thing. So I'm like, all right, what are we going to do? And Alberto Castillo is catching. So he would always think like outside the box. He was like – he's like, all right, throw a changeup. I threw each change. I'm like, I've thrown like 10 changeups my entire career. And – I was like, hey, it's just like the, the Yankee game. Maybe it will work here, and I'll just try a change-up. So I throw him a change-up, and he crushes it. And I'm like, nah, nah, that ain't gone, is it? And I'm looking up, and I'm like, oh, no. Because he like leaned out one foot and one-footed it and hits off the foul ball home run. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. In my hometown, my first home run. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> I'm like, no. I'm like, but I, then I'm but then I, you know, I'm in the, that angry mode slash – because – Little history that that series they they hit Delgado four times up to that point, and I didn't know I wasn't really paying attention to that piece, but I I knew a little bit that you know we already had warnings, but I didn't I didn't know I was on the mound I didn't remember that. Mm-hmm. So Castillo, where I was facing Travis Lee, and the first pitch I throw him a throw him a down and in slider, and he rips it down the line, and it's about an inch foul from being like off the wall, and I'm like you gotta be kidding me. I'm like no, no. I'm like these guys are getting too comfortable now. Um, so Berto Castillo, knowing me, he gives me a fastball in, like really hard in. And, I, and my goal was to really move, make him move his feet. Like I want okay. him to know that, like, you know, you're not going to swing like that. I didn't necessarily want to hit him. I just wanted to move his feet. And I throw the ball and I drill him right in the back. And I get tossed right away. <laughs> tossed. Because there was warnings. I, I didn't know. I didn't remember that. I didn't know that. And I get tossed. Marlon Anderson comes running out of dugout, Philly dugout. There's almost a bench clearing brawl, right? And I'm like. I'm arms go up. I'm still trying to look for a video for this. I don't have footage. I, I remember being like, what What I do? Like, I'm thrown out? And I didn't know. And I'm asking for the ball back. And they're like, no, you got to get out of here. And I'm like, what? What do you do? So I go into the dugout. I sit next to Jose Cruz Jr. 
and he has his hand in his mouth. He's kind of laughing. He's like, you, oh man, what are you crazy? You're going to crazy, get us in a fight. And, um, He's like, you got to, you know, you got to go in the clubhouse. So I'm like, what? what? I don't know. He's like, you can't stay in the dugout. And oh, so you were hanging out in the dugout? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I literally, at first game of my entire life, I ever got thrown, the first and last game I ever got thrown out of, ever, ever. And I go back to the clubhouse. And I'm like, oh my god. And the booze, getting booed off the field, was so loud. I mean, I never heard anything like it. I mean, I was like, this is Philly. Uh, this is great. I remember tipping my cap. I'm like, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I was mad, but at the same time, I was like, and. The longer I'm away from it now, it's like one of the best experiences ever. Even though, I mean, it cost me like five grand. That's what I got fined, five grand for that. I'm like, nowadays, I'm like, five grand, fine. I'm like, it's like, it's like a month worth of work. Hey, what did your pop say when you got home and you got booed off the field? What did he say to you? It actually, it's crazy because my mom and dad were both, they were, they finally saw the true side of Philly fans from the other side. And it actually changed the way my dad looked at Philly sports after that, because he said they were, we had a section of a couple hundred people right behind home plate and they were cheering for me when I went in and they said people were throwing hot dogs at them, throwing sodas at them and shit. Wow. And they like, knew you were the hometown kid. Yeah. But you're talking about 30,000 fans and yeah, they don't yeah. know that it's like this little section. And so they're throwing stuff at them. Like my whole family was like, you gotta be kidding. But I look back and I'm like, man, imagine if there was a bench clearing brawl, like, like, in Philly, with family friend, like friends mm-hmm. with my dad and and his friend, and then my college friends. If I was getting pummeled, do you think they're going to stay in the stands? There's no. It would have been. That would have been a great story. It would have been the malice in the palace. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been, it, it, it been the Ron testing in uh, in Detroit. Yeah, there's no way my college friends would sit there <laughs> like. Yeah, no, there's no way. They would. They, there's no way. And, uh, so I look back and I'm like, man, what? But ultimately, I didn't. I didn't mean to hit them. I really didn't. Um, not that I would admit I did, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you just try to make them move their feet. But I, I forgot, I forgot in the, in the getting caught up in the moment of the warning and, and not to hit anybody because, you know, obviously I was going to get ejected and, and Buck got ejected too. And it was like, and Larry Bowe was a manager at the time and, you know, he was uh, going ballistic, but it was great. You pitched a ton your rookie year. Do you think that contributed to the injury the second year or no? I don't know. I mean, people say that. I, I don't know. I think I think I think I know what contributed to it. Um, but that off season, I started throwing a split finger fastball, um, just because I wanted something. I, I struck out more guys in the in the minor leagues. I had more of an out pitch, mm-hmm. but my slur slider wasn't much of an out pitch in the big leagues. Guys didn't bite on it as much, so I, I thought I needed like an out pitch. If I wanted to become a setup closer in the big leagues, like my okay. goal was to become something bigger. And it's a blessing and a curse to have that kind of drive because you you kind of I should have realized at the time. You know, look back and like. Stay with what I have because it's pretty successful, but I want to get better. And ultimately, it changed my arm angle a little bit, trying to throw that pitch. It got it pretty good, but then I started having arm issues out of nowhere on my shoulder. I never had an arm issue ever. And I tried to pitch through it, of course, and that was another issue I had. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have that because then I made it worse and made it worse and made it worse. And I was pitching really hurt. I mean, really hurt in spring training. And um, so it just compounded the issue. And uh so yeah, I don't I don't blame it on that. I mean, even though my rookie year I pitched in a lot of games, but I was also up way more games than I got into. Like I must have had 162 games. I must have been up at least 120 games. Oof. Like I was up by almost every game. That was one thing that people said with Buck. The one uh, criticism was that he got the bullpen up a lot. Like you don't realize how much getting a guy in a bullpen up. And I never thought it was a problem. I really didn't. I don't I don't contribute that at all. But um, it maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about pitching. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all the athletes I have on my show, they say the disabled list, it's a very lonely place. 
Uh-huh. You're kind of away from. Did you feel that mentally too? Like yeah. oh, I'm away from that, and you're young too. So it's not like a nine-year veteran who gets hurt. Like okay, did you feel as lonely? Yeah, it was terrible. Um, I was in. The only good thing about it was I was smart saving money because when you're in the disabled, you're on a big league roster making big league pay. I was down in Florida after surgery, and I had to rehab in Florida. And they put you up in a hotel, give you rent a car, and they give you meal money, and you get your salary. So I was just putting it all away because I didn't know if this is it. Like I was smart about it, you know, and I wanted to make sure that like at least I had a buffer there. Um, and yeah, it was it's terrible. It's terrible. You're in a hotel by yourself. You go to the field. Um, to a couple of my trainers who I'm still close with today, we, we talk and, um, they would be like the coordinator, my league coordinator trainer would do my rehab, take two hours, go back to the hotel and just sit there seven days a week, all year long. And then once you're ready to pitch, you can actually go to the team and in, in like Dunedin and you would pitch like the first inning, which is also weird. Cause as a reliever, I would have to start a game. I might really get my one or two innings. And it was weird cause you had to warm up like a starter does. And that's, not what I do. I could warm up in 15 pitches. I don't need. So it was all, it was just weird. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's a terrible experience in terms of, uh, cause you don't know, especially being a young guy, like you said, if I had some years behind me, a guaranteed contract to be like, you still probably, and not to say that takes away the mental side of it, but at the same time, there's some buffer there where for me, I had one year solid year in and I had nothing guaranteed. So it was, it was, it was, it was a lonely place. What adjustments did you make pitching? And you know, Pedro always famously says he went from being a 98 mile per hour fastball guy to becoming a pitcher. You know, what adjustments uh, did you make when you came back? Well, a lot because I pitched a lot in AAA, um, and I was I was throwing more fastballs, um, a lot more fastballs with control. Um, so I had my sinker still it wasn't as late and lively as it was, but it still moved quite a bit. So I was able to work with that, and I also started throwing more changeups. I just threw whatever I took, whatever I could to get a hitter out in that particular situation. And I started kicking that mindset. No more. I would never, I never try, even though I was a power pitcher for a point there, I never tried to overpower anyone because the only time I ever did that was one time in Great Falls, Montana, and I gave up one of the monstrous home runs ever. Um, I remember throwing as hard as I could, and the guy hit me so far and didn't even blink. So I knew if Billy Koch couldn't throw 100 past people, I knew I couldn't throw 92 past people. So I think I just did that. And in AAA, I did very well. I was pitching on rehab and then I was activated and I was, I was saving a lot of games. I had lower your at the time. I mean, it, it, I was making them have to call me up. Like really had to, even though my fastball was still on like 88 topping out 91, it was in that danger zone, but I had movement. So I was, I was getting away with stuff. Uh, not as much as I used to, if I made a mistake, I got crushed. But, um, but yeah, ultimately I kind of just worked with whatever, whatever we get to hit her out. And it got me another year and a half, almost two years in the big leagues. So at any point, did you start thinking of life outside of baseball? No. The only time I thought of that is because I started to feel pretty decent after 2004 at the end. Um, I, I, I hit 94 a couple of times. I remember being like, okay, I'm, I'm getting somewhere here. And the season ended, and um, I knew the Blue Jays were going to release me because I was arbitration eligible. So that being said, I had like four something year. I knew where my arm was and where it is now, and they can get some young guy for the next three years, three-plus years. I pay them the minimum. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they had to pay me. A decent. So I knew being arbitration eligible that was that was a bad thing for me because I knew they weren't going to offer me arbitration. So I became a minor league free agent. Then when they released me, and when they released me, I mean every team called. I mean it was pretty cool to have that kind of interest. And it came down to me for um, to the Cardinals and Tampa Bay Rays. And the only reason I signed with the Cardinals was because my mindset was I knew La Russa and Dave Duncan, the coaches at the time, would give guys a chance if they pitched well. They would 
you you'd be on the big league team no matter mm-hmm. who you were. And they always done that with with guys. They reinvented guys' careers yeah. from pitches. And um, I knew with Tampa Bay, it was that the division knew me. Um, I did. It was a comfort thing. It was on the Dunedin side of the coast. I could, you know, be comfortable in that area. I knew the division. I knew the. But that being said, I knew all the guys knew me. If I went to the National League, there was an extra, one less hitter in the lineup. A lot of slap hitters at mm-hmm. the time. Less, and I figured I could do well being a sinker baller and get more ground balls, get out that way. And Dave Duncan loves sinker ballers. I'm like, I got to sign with the Cardinals, even though I, little did I know how great it was. I mean, talk about a winning organization. You walk in that clubhouse and you're like, no wonder. Like, you just know why they win all the time. Like, it's a different – it was totally different than I was used to. Like, not to say Toronto didn't try to win. Mm-hmm. You went into the St. Louis clubhouse and, like, they were – you knew. Like, for a big league team to be that passionate every day. I mean, and I knew Pujols. We've gone back from a couple of winter leagues, and he welcomed me in. It was great. And the whole thing. It, was a, it was a good experience. Uh, Rick Ankle was my locker mate. It was a oh wow, league. wow, a great guy, and um, had a good experience there. But back to your question, long winded. Um, basically, till I got hurt again, um, right before the season began that year, is when I was like, okay, it's time to uh, reevaluate. How difficult is it? You know, forget about leaving one job. You know, can, you can have a career for thirty years. Whenever you leave, it's difficult. One, you're a big leaguer, which is obviously the elite of the elite. Everyone knows you, but you're young. That's always fascinates me. You know, when a guy retires at 51 and gets another job doing a side gig, you're 25, leaving the big leagues. How, again, do you mentally process that and be like, okay, I have to get into the real world now? Yeah, yeah. It was um, – it's hard. I had a guy who finished playing right before me, John Ratliff. He uh, he was a first-rounder, actually, drafted before Kerry Wood. He wound up getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues. But he got done playing a year before me. And he was doing pharmaceutical sales work for Pfizer. And I remember him telling me, like, listen, I'm like, what do I get into next? I started – we would talk all the time. And I'm just, like, trying to plan, like, what do I get into next? Because I have a computer science degree. I'm nine years out from school. A lot of technology has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm going to get into the development world right away. I'm like, what can I possibly get into? He's like, look into the pharmaceutical sales. Because, you know, it's science that you probably like the science part of it. And, um, you know, you can do the sales part pretty easily. So that's what I started to look into. Like, and he prepped me for interviews. And this is why I was still playing. Mm-hmm. But um, I was preparing. So when I got done playing with St. Louis, it was uh, May of that year, uh, end of May, right after spring training, after I rehabbed a little bit and I decided to um, get released. And I went home to rehab still an injury. And I started interviewing for pharmaceutical sales jobs. And I put – literally, Monster.com was the big recruiting <laughs> site, and I put as my headline, former major league pitcher looking for pharmaceutical sales opportunity. Because at the time, pharmaceutical sales was the hot gig that everybody wanted, and they paid so well. So you had to stand out, out, yeah. So I had to stand out. So I said, why not put it out there? I was getting hit because from that world, you know, if you can be remembered by a doctor doing a sales call – and not that I wore a jersey in there – but it's like if they remembered I played baseball, you remember. Yeah. It's like sales, you know? So I got a job with AstraZeneca. Literally started that July. I was just in spring training with Pujols, Carpenter, Ankiel. Ah. And three months later, I'm in sales training, like crash course med school at AstraZeneca for two months, learning about you know, how, how the body works and diseases. And I'm like, I remember being like, what is going on right now? And uh, I kind of got into that and did that for – Quite a few years, you got into management, did well there, and then um, got into a few other things, wound up coaching, getting my master's in computer science, um, just because I wanted to get back into the tech realm, and that's where I kind of work today. Well, give me – I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned LaSalle. You coached over there. Do you like coaching or no? A lot of old athletes don't like it. Oh, did you? What did you like I about know. it? Well, I was um, – I also taught as an adjunct locally too. Okay. So I teach some programming courses, and I like teaching. 
Um, the coaching opportunity came up because uh, the head coach was looking for a pitching coach, and I was looking at grad school at the time. I was going to go to Drexel for to get my computer science master's because I wanted to get back in the tech world. And um, I remember him calling me up. He's like, "You want to be my pitching coach?" I'm like, eh. "I'm like, you know what? It's something I thought I thought about." I'm like, "Let me talk to your. Can we make a deal here? If I look at your master's programs, I'll see if we have something that fits." Because I wasn't really looking at LaSalle. Talked to the chair, the department. I found like a pretty good niche type computer science, information technology leadership uh, master's degree. And I'm like, can you pay for my master's while I'm coaching? And they agreed to it. So I was like, perfect. Well, so that's I started gig, yeah. So I told Drexel no. I didn't put a deposit down, which is good because I was paying out of pocket. And I went to LaSalle and I was like, all right, do that. And I started coaching. And um, it's funny, my first my first year in my master's program, I had to like, part of it was some programming stuff. I had to write a program for our final exam with something, an idea of my own. And this is back in 2013. When did I coach there? 2013-ish. And um, so they started using signs, like pitchers, pitching coaches would give signs to, to catchers to give to the pitcher. And I remember being like, there's got to be tools out there where you can like have a wristband or something like that. This is before the wristband they use everywhere. Oh, wow. So I wrote a program to do it for my final project. And I, I printed out like every pitcher had their own little, and we had the quadrant of the strike zone, and you could, you know, have, and it would randomize the pitches. So I would give like one, two, one, and the pitcher would look, and we would throw that pitch. So I, it worked for school, and I worked, I did it for the actual. We used it as a pitching coach, and it was awesome coaching. I mean, I, I was coaching at LaSalle, so it was I got to see the inner workings of a D1 program. It's a mid-major, small D1, but they played in the Atlantic 10. So I saw my eyes were wide. I'm glad I didn't see this when I was playing because. Mm-hmm. Just the amount of athletes at the Division One level and the, to the Division Two level, to getting drafted. I mean, there were guys on this team that I was coaching them, which is like tremendous athletes. I mean, unbelievable. And to think like, okay, they have to compete in the A10 against these other great athletes, and just get noticed and get drafted. And then you know you're down to the Division Two, Division Three level. It's like the chances are even slimmer. But I love coaching. I love. I would do it. I would do it as a full time job today if I could get a job that pays well. The problem is I work in technology, so I like nice stuff. Yeah. And I say that and you, you coach at a small mid, even D one school in this local yeah. area, you can't even live off the salary. It's crazy. I have friends that coach still and it's, um, they're working two jobs and oh. it's, it's terrible. It's terrible for what coaches get paid compared to basketball and football in this part of the country. Um, it, I mean, the time, the time suck is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you travel every weekend, Thursday through Sunday. I mean, it, but I did, I, I really liked it a lot. Are you still a fan of the game? <sighs> That's a tough question. Um, and I was, let, me, let me tell you, Bob. So many athletes I've had on, they're like, "Yeah, I guess I, I watch it, but it's not like no appointment watching." They're like, "Like I had Kurt Schilling was on recently. He's like, you know what? If Kershaw pitches, I'll throw it on. He still watches, but it's hard to be a fan when that was your life. So are you still a fan? Like I'm gonna watch yeah. a game tonight." <laughs> it's funny. I um I had this conversation with Jeff Fry not too long ago. I was saying I, I watched two big league games this year. Um, one was Tampa Bay because Kevin Cash was managing, and I know Kevin really well. Mm-hmm. And the other one was a Toronto game. <clears throat> and I was just curious because they were playing in Buffalo. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing for a big league game. And I wanted to see how many home runs were going to get hit. Hmm. Um, but I remember watching these games, and I remember being like, oh, my God. I just I just no interest. Um, but that being said, the college level, like the College World Series, I want to go to. I want to make a trip out there. Mm-hmm. Having coached the college level. College kids are just maybe naive and, and just – just aren't jaded yet like us big league players because once you get to the big leagues you know that's the pinnacle yeah and you know it what happens behind the scenes some of it and especially like someone like me who was a, a bottom tier like i've never at the top tier mid-tier where i was guaranteed and i was truly a part of an organization for a long time 
Um, so it's hard to uh, it's hard to watch, and that's on top of the way the big league game is played now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's played. It's just not. It's not. It's not an entertaining sport to watch at this point. It really it's great athletes, but it's either home run, strikeout. That's it. And there's no stolen bases. Guys don't even hardly take leads. It's um. It's disappointing that piece of the game because every hitter is kind of sculpted the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hit 40, 50 home runs, you're getting paid. You throw 100 miles an hour, you get paid. I mean, I look at this Bauer kid. Kid's talented. I mean, the money he's going to get in the market. I mean, he he started what 11 games last year yeah. for that short yeah. season. I mean, but the market's paying it. I mean, they're getting what they deserve because the money's coming in for merchandising. I mean, they're getting, I mean, it's all relative, right? But I, I just, I don't know. I don't see, like, like I looked at, um, who's the Yankee guy? Um, see, this how much I know about the Garrett Cole? Yeah, the guy's, the guy's a beast. But I, I looked at the complete games. How many complete games has he had in his career? I mean, I played with Roy Holiday. We used to run, <laughs> we used to out, try to outrun each other. And the guy worked like nobody I've ever seen before. And I mean, complete games. The guy would not want to come, ever come off the mound. I think the game, the way it's structured, it's not the pitcher's fault. It's not Garrett Cole. It's not. They probably would pitch that far mm-hmm. in the games. The fact, the fact that they're playing relievers more. The game structured like five, six innings and out. And it's just the way it's. The game has evolved. And I keep saying, if the game evolves, I'm all for it. If they're going to do these crazy things with whatever the how they train, and if guys are going to hit a million home runs, then okay. And and if it, Fans are going to be in the stands, packed every game, every night. Then it's all good, but that's not happening. So something's wrong. What is it? I don't know what. I mean, so back to your point. I mean, college game I love. Mm-hmm. I got baseball, little league, and stuff. I mean, not too little league, and where kids can't throw yet. But um, but yeah, I love I love watching the game where guys will still run through walls. You know, you you love the purity of the game, and I'll, I'll tell you this, Bob. I don't know if you're an old school wrestling fan. I had this conversation like two weeks, and we talked about this exact thing. We're like, look at the Yankees lineup. It's Stanton, it's Judge, you know, it's Gary Sanchez. It's guys hitting 250, 50 home runs, or they're striking out. I'm like, I, we want guys, and I know Yankee fans on Twitter and stuff. I just want guys to put the ball in play. It sounds so old school, and it's like old wrestling. No one was jacked and ripped up like you have the Ultimate Warrior and Hogan, but everybody else was like a heavy set guy with a gimmick. And now, if you ever put on wrestling now, I don't watch it, but if I see it on. Every guy's this six five jack chiseled monster. I'm like, it took away from the whole, um, you know, personality of the game. Yeah, I mean, you, it's relatable. It was relatable when you saw a super fly schnooker coming off the, the top rope. You know what I mean? Like it was relatable because they were. It, it, that's the thing. And, and baseball's tough because I go back to my Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs being, I mean, the guy would put the ball in play all the mm-hmm. time. Where, like you said, you brought up Aaron Judge and these other guys like Sanchez. And the Sanchez, another thing. I mean, talk. I just got in these conversations. I didn't realize him his defensive skills. That's a big topic on Twitter these days. And I just follow oh, yeah. some of these, and they're, and they're saying like the whole one knee down thing. Like I'm not a catching guru, mm-hmm. but um, I get it. Like Tony Pena did it, but Tony Pena won like how many Gold Gloves? I, I know. That's the thing. You do all these things, and if it works for you, and you're the top of your game, and you're the best. Then hey, keep doing it. But if it's not working, then what are you doing? Like I, it, it's tough. It's tough to see guys at 250. It, it just it's it's like you're swinging so hard. You know how easy it would be to sinker ball these guys today. I mean, if they're gonna swing that hard, I saw a guy take a hack. It was that game I was watching on TV this year with Kevin Cash. Tampa Bay was playing the Blue Jays, and this guy was throwing like 95 miles an hour. He had the guy 02, and he winds up throws a fastball. This guy on Tampa Bay, I don't know who it was. This guy swung so hard he fell down. 02 count. I'm like, Wade Boggs would he do that? Would Tony Gwynn do that? And I, you sound so old. But like I said, I'm 15 years removed from the game. It's not. It's not from the big league game. It's not like it's a. 
30, 40 years ago. And like, cause Jeff Fry gets beat up on Twitter a lot about this stuff. Cause I call him a dinosaur because, yeah, yeah. you know, playing a year with him, he was, he was at the tail end of his career. He played in the, in the eighties and, and you know, in the nineties where, you know, it was really old school in terms of mentality. And those guys were still around when I played the tail end, but the whole, I mean, game's changed. I mean, and if it's for the better, I'm all for it, but I put on the game, I watch it. I might be jaded a little bit, but it's just not, I'd rather watch basketball. Or I rather watch football. And then that's it. All right. You ready to finish up with a few quick hit questions? Yeah. What do you got? You and I hanging out in a bar. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Wow. I'm trying to think. It would be Holiday. But he passed away, unfortunately. You know what? I'll let you have that answer. That's a good answer. If if you texted him, he'd hit you back? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right away. He would text me back because I got used to get jersey from him when I was coaching on sale, sign jersey and things like that. Yeah, he would. Yeah, he would probably be. One trivia question for you. We mentioned his name earlier. Who was your first strikeout against? First strikeout was Scott Brocious. Oh, was it? I, I, yeah, I thought it was O'Neal. I thought it was O'Neal for a while. And I believe I'm pretty I'm 99.9% positive it was Scott Brocious because I threw a sinker down and he swung through it. I was like, how do you miss that? I just remember being like, Oh, my God. All right. But yeah, I have a scalp. O'Neal was my second. Okay. Not a bad second. What show did you find yourself binge-watching during the quarantine that you never thought you'd watch? That I never thought I'd watch? Because um, I'm a big TV show buff, so it's it, it's one I watched probably with, I mean, all the Real Housewives shows. Okay. I love those. They're, they're great. I'm a 90 they're Day great. Fiance guy. My wife and I watch that. <laughs> I know those guys from Opie and Anthony. They were out there. Was it Opie and Anthony? One of the shows I listened to, they were talking about 90 Day Fiance all the time. Oh, that's you know, it's funny you, you mentioned I actually work with Opie from Opie and Anthony. Really? Yeah. I, I do. I love that show. I, I would I would pay for Sirius just because of them. And then when they broke up, I was I was still following both of them. I was still listening to the show with, with Sam and Jim. Mm-hmm. And um, that show, it was still decent, but I wasn't going to pay for Sirius anymore. But then I saw Obi won his path. I tried to see, you know, he has his own thing going, right? And then Anthony has his own thing going. Yeah, I was a fan of those. Man, back in two, that when I got done playing, like yeah. 2001 is when they really were starting to, I mean, they were already blown up. But, they were huge man. in Philly and YSP, right? Yes, yes. And they went always went up against um, the local guy here. I forget, what was his name? John DeBella. John, John DeBella. Yeah, those guys, I mean. It was. It was all. They made what podcasting is today. Really. Yeah. That's what Rogan always says. Because he says, you know, it's a hang, which is cool. It's not. It's not like a direct, like you know, thirty ten minute interview. It's. Uh, it's like a hang, I and mean, it's. Uh, yeah, it's great. I'll tell you something funny. So I'm the. When I mean the biggest Opie and Anthony fan, I have like a thousand cassettes in my mom's garage down the shore. Like I'm obsessed with them, right? So I started doing the podcast, and I started getting a little. You no, know, I was having really, really good guests on. So I kept DMing Opie. He somehow followed me on Twitter. And Bob, I legit harassed the dude. Like every day I'm like, hey, Opie, I had on Dick Vitale come on my show. And he's like, oh, keep up the good work, bro. I'm like, I had Omar from The Wire come on my show. Every time I did a show, I would legit tell him, like, just come on. Just come on. Finally, I'm like, dude, don't even come on. Can you come watch me do a show? Because I have a bar in New York that lets me do it. Finally, after like, you know, he gets, he leaves Sirius XM, he gets fired. And he's starting his podcast. And he's like, Listen, I think he just gave up. He's like, dude, just come to this bar on podcasting. And I kind of knew the things. I had a nice Rolodex of some guests. And I worked with him for like a year. I still talk to him all the time. And it blows my mind. I'm like, this is Opie from Opie and Anthony. This is like the coolest shit ever that I get to hang out with him. So that's wild. You listen to him, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For years, man. I mean, I'm a big, huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great. I mean, I can't. I mean, all the guests. I have, Rick, Rich Ross. I mean, I know that whole. That's how I got into comedy big time. Because we go down the healing in Philly, watch all the different comics they would have on. 
it, it's funny. One one last thing. I wish I knew that. We could have did the whole show on Opie and Anthony. They changed, and I hate to sound like, oh, the Beatles of Radio Stern, you know, starred the whole shot. Check. But the hang thing, you listen to old shows now on YouTube, and they'd have Burr, Patrice O'Neill, Norton. And you felt – Colin Quinn, and you felt like you were sitting at a bar. Like mm-hmm. you were the bartender just listening just to, these, listen. to these dudes hang out. And it changed podcast. It changed comedy. I would never – oh, who's playing – these little-known comics blew up to these – Bill Burr is one of the biggest stars in the game. Started there basically. Well, it's like Bert Kreischer told his uh, machine story on that on that show. And I remember I was doing a baseball camp, sitting there listening to him like this guy. I would never know who Bert Kreischer was mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, I went and seen him at Philly when he came. And, and a lot of those com- comedians, it was it's that whole that whole group. You feel like in the podcasting world has made it feel like you're you know them mm-hmm. personally. And that's why, you, you know, you go see their shows. And it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that show was fantastic. It's it's it's, it's it was great. All right. Last three. Coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Uh, I was never a big collector um, of memorabilia at all, um, unfortunately, because looking back, I could have some really cool stuff today because the the access I had at the time. But um, I mean, I do have my jersey frame, which is cool. I got as a gift. But I I guess I have a bat signed, a black bat with with silver Sharpie signed by the entire team of the Arizona Falling in the year 2000. Um, It's at my mom and dad's house because I gave it to my dad as like a gift. And I knew that bat would have some big names on it someday. Like Pujols is on that mm-hmm. bat. Oh, uh, Ryan Friel, Chad Hutchinson, the quarterback. He of course. Fun to, I mean, all big leaguers on that. And so that's pretty, pretty cool piece of piece of uh, memorabilia. Best baseball movie of all time is. I just, just, I just had this conversation. It was on Twitter somewhere. I think somebody was talking about it because um, they're talking about Kevin Costner and Yellowstone, the TV show. Um, Field of Dreams. Hands down. And how about this one? Last one. One baseball moment you wish you could have witnessed live, either as a fan or in the bullpen, in the dugout, any uh, baseball moment in the history of the game that you could have been, you know what, in the bullpen for? Hmm. That's a tough one. Just because some of those moments I look back, like I always think about like when I was playing against a lot of guys, I always wanted to see the moment. Like my my example would be like Trevor Hoffman. I was there when he came in for a save because it was like notorious. I wanted to see what it looked like Troy Percival when he came Mm -hmm. for a save, the way the stadium rocked and like being seeing that, you remember like, wow. I I, I guess like Hank Aaron's home run. I was just seeing the highlights because he passed away, what was it, two days ago? Mm -hmm. And I was watching the highlights of when he hit that home run. That's when like – Fans running on the field. Yeah, the two, the two dudes like, run on the field. Two, like, like, like hold his hand. It's like, and, and like, you would never see that, obviously. To last. But I, I saw that actually this morning. I was, I was like, man, that, that would be pretty cool. Because that was, I mean, nobody thought, you know, he would ever break that record, let alone, you know. And then Bonds comes and destroys it. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, that would probably be the moment. That's pretty cool. Bob, this was an absolute blast. And listen, Opie's always down in Philly because his wife's family there. And I'll be honest. Yeah. After this, I'll just you. with people I know. Oh, really? And after this, when uh, he goes down there a lot, I, I go down there with him. We'll go down and have a few drinks, all of us. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, yeah. Dude, this was an absolute blast. I'll keep in touch, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, man. See you later, my friend. All right. Bye-bye. See you, man.